will turn with me to Luke chapter 2 in the Gospel. We're reading from verses 1 through the end of that section. And if you wouldn't mind, as we listen to this portion of God's Word, think of it as one, or receive it as one who is a non-believer. What what does this sound like? What would you think as a non-believer of what we're about to read? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we've come here this morning to worship you, to honor you. In some ways, it's amazing that some 2,000 years later, we would want and desire to do that which took place back there in Bethlehem. And I pray that this morning that you would give us a, a fresh perspective on, on what it meant for you to send your only son to die for us, the Incarnation. I pray, Father, that 
as we go through this coming week, that we would be mindful of just how much you love us and how much you care and how much you have done and continue to do for us, your people. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'm really glad that we've come to this time of year where we can celebrate the birth of our Savior. And I hope that you enjoy the Christmas season without having to be too terribly burdened with all the other things that come along. I was talking to my wife, Debbie, uh, just yesterday, and we were kind of rehearsing have we done everything that we needed to do, and we were a little bit surprised that we were able to say, yes, we don't feel any pressure to do this thing or that thing. And so in a sense, we could say, well, we can enjoy, you know, the, the next few days, enjoy it with our family and our kids. We have some that are out of town, and it's just a great time with the family, and I, I hope that the same will be for you. I know that in some cases, it can be a little bit tender. But I do think that this particular passage helps us focus upon the Incarnation in a, in a really special way. But I must say that if I were a non-believer and I was listening to this passage, I think the first thing that I would say to myself is, well, this is a great kind of fable. This is a great little story somebody created to entertain us this time of year. And let's face it, Christmas time, there's all kinds of things, all kinds of traditions, all kinds of movies and stories and books, and the list goes on and on and on of sort of make-believe type emphasis, right? And I suspect that for a non-believer, when they think about this, they would say the same. Is it fair to say that as a Christian, not just in terms of this time of year, but in general, throughout the rest of the year, if a non-believer were to listen to your conversations or somehow have a sense of what goes on in your heart and mind, they might say the same thing. That it sounds like a lot of foolishness, a lot of make-believe, a lot of, of fairy tales. So it doesn't surprise us in the New Testament when we read from Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Or in the NIV, in verse 14, the same section there in 1 Corinthians 1, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So think about it. Your perspective of reality, of what's true, what's not true, often will be viewed as foolishness. The, the whole issue of, of truth, of values, uh, of, of so many different parts of our lives would be considered foolish. If you talk about heaven, that must be foolishness, some, some kind of fairy tale type thing. Some would say that your perspective of sin and offending God that you cannot see is foolishness. Maybe even prayer. Although maybe prayer seems to have a little bit more generic acceptance in some ways. If you were, if you were riding downtown on, a, on the metro and you're sitting next to somebody and you said to them, do you ever pray? 
You might find that, that if they were a non-believer, they would say, well, occasionally I, I feel like I need to pray, just sort of reaching out to nothing because they don't feel like they have anything else to reach out to. I, I don't know, but, but even prayer can be under that category. And certainly something like Satan sounds like a fairy tale kind of thing, right? And what about angels? Certainly angels. And all the things that have been written about angels and all the books and, again, the movies and the fairy tales, it's almost as if, as a way of taking away from the truth of angels, there's been so many other things that have been said, right, and written and produced as a way of kind of saying it is just another form of foolishness and nobody who is serious about life would ever believe in an angel. But here, the Gospel of Luke is providing for us an account of that which is not some kind of fairy tale, but which is true. That angels actually do exist. And if you go into the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, you will find that there is a lot said, a lot taught in regards to angels. And it is somewhat noteworthy that within the Gospel of Luke, in the first couple of chapters, you have three occurrence of angels, right? If you go back to chapter 1, you're going to be reminded of Zacharias' encounter with the angel. And then the very next section of the scriptures, you have the encounter with Mary and Gabriel in both cases, informing them of what God is doing in regards to his work and plan of redemption. And then, of course, we have the angels appearing to shepherds. I'm not going to talk a lot about that per se, and that is in terms of what it means for angels to, to speak to shepherds, but I do want you to think about the fact that both Old and New Testament, you go way back to the early book in the, in the Pentateuch and you see the presence of angels. You see with uh, Moses, for example, Abram, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all, all throughout. And then as you go on the, the post-exilic period of the Old Testament, the same thing. It's interesting that in the earlier chapters or the earlier occurrences in the Old Testament, the name isn't given. In the latter section of the Old Testament, the name is given. It's just, it's an interesting note that sometimes we kind of read through so quickly, we don't really think much about the significance of it. But this morning, I would like you to think about the angels and what they represented and what we can take away as we go into tonight, the rest of Christmas Eve, and then tomorrow, and then this coming week, and then the coming year in regards to what we are told, what we are taught, you might say, in regards to the presence of angels. And there are four things that I would like you to to think about. First of all, is the glory of God. Secondly, is the aspect of their message. Third, the dynamic of fear. Why are people so afraid when they're in the presence of angels? And then last of all, of course, the issue of worship. So let's look at these. Uh, we need to go through them pretty quick. So I, I want you to think about what it would have been like to be in that shepherd or those shepherds in the field, out in the night, 
doing what they always do, day in and day out, and then all of a sudden having the presence or having this angel and then angels present. What would that, what would that be like? Well, we're told in the passage, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over the flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and note that the name isn't given here, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Why? Because angels are in the presence of God, and anyone who's in the presence of God is going to reflect God's glory. The whole dynamic of glory is, is that which we think about when we're talking about the majesty of God, the, the, the weight and the worthiness of God. We often think about his glory. Uh, in the, in the, uh, uh, the Old and the New Testament, when we think about the weight, we're thinking about the fact that, that uh, you go back in the Old Testament and you, or re, you'll recall that in Exodus chapter 16, uh, when the people of Israel were being taken through the wilderness, that they were being led by the glory of God, in essence. That it was the glory of God that filled the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. And Moses was told that he would have to be hidden behind a rock in Exodus 33 as a way of being protected because, in essence, of the glory of God. In some cases, uh, we're able to get us a... a our people are able to accept God's glory. In other cases, it's so bright, it's so overwhelming that it just kind of leaves them paralyzed, you might say. The weight, weightiness of God, the, the holiness of God, you might say, is somewhat which, which is that being represented in God's glory. In Revelation 22, verse 5, it says, There will be no more night, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And so imagine again being out in this field trying to care for your, your asset, your uh, very, very valuable part of your life, right, that is going to bring income and you're wanting to make sure that these animals are being protected and all of a sudden you are being confronted with the glory of God. Now, when I think about heaven, as Revelation reminds us, and I think about the dynamics of all that Old and New Testament have taught us back in the Old Testament, New Testament, I say to myself, well, I can't really relate to that, right? Like, that's, I can read about it, I can maybe study it, but I, I really can't, I can't experience it today unless I go to Psalm 19, right? And Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, yes, even today, without the presence of an angel or angels, I can get a glimpse of God's greatness of his heaviness, you might say, his, his worthiness. When I view a sunrise or a sunset, if I travel and I see part of his creation, uh, even, even when I, and I know this may sound somewhat odd, but even when 
I wake up in the morning and I go about my work or I go about my preparation and I, to go to work and I get on something as mundane as the metro or I drive in my car, do you realize how much order there is in life that is, in essence, a reflection of what the psalmist is saying here in Psalm 19? Meaning that the presence of God and his, his order, his his creation, etc., the fact that you were made in the image of God and you reflect that image in terms of your creative ability. And as I look out here this morning and I see everyone, in their, some in their more Christmas colors, etc., but the clothes that you have on and the fact that they, the way that in which they were manufactured and the, and the systems that, that brought them eventually to you through the markets, etc., and the the currency that you had to pay for things. There is so many things in our lives that reflect, in essence, God and his presence. And psalmist would say, like in terms of viewing the Rocky Mountains or a great ocean or a sunset, etc., the glory of God. We do see so much that we don't totally own. Point two, the issue, uh, the issue of the message. Uh, clearly here, the angels weren't just going to be present. In fact, how often do you see in Old or New Testament the presence of an angel just to be there, just to be standing around, right? Nope. You don't think about that at all. I mean, you don't think at all of an angel just being present. You always think of an angel as a messenger, and rightfully so. They always have something to say. And so here we're told in this passage their, their, their message, what they were about, uh, what was being proclaimed. And what was being proclaimed, of course, was the incarnation. One has been born. It's interesting that in this particular section of Luke, three times it talks about the manger, the manger, the manger, the, the baby in the manger, right? And if you think about that, it's a reminder of the humility, the, the humility of Christ. That, and it doesn't really make sense. And this, I would say, this certainly is part of the foolish, you might say the foolishness of the gospel, that God would send his son, and instead of coming and being born in the Ritz-Carlton or some wonderful hospital with, with all the, the modern technologies and, and the advantages, he is placed in a manger, right? It, isn't it interesting how in the beginning uh, section of the gospel, you got the shepherds out in the field, and you got this, this earthiness, this uh, agrarian-type thing going on, where it just doesn't like make sense. But that's the message. There's a baby born in a manger. Christ's love for you, so great, so high, so long, so deep, that he would be laid in that which is only fit for animals, right? Most of us wouldn't even put our dogs there, our cats there, much less a baby. 
But that's how much God loves us. And the message that they have, the message that these angels are giving, are reminding us of that. It is noteworthy that in all three accounts, Zechariah, when he heard the message about what was going to take place in his life and Elizabeth, he turned around and said, that's great, I, I'm so glad to hear this, we've been waiting for this. No, that's not what he said. He was like, this can't be true. I, this can't be right. There's something wrong here. In other words, hearing the message from heaven and then saying it can't be true. And Mary, for example, does she immediately accept the message from the angel? No. She said, well, how can this be? I'm a virgin. This doesn't make sense. This sounds foolish, right? Again, there's this constant theme. And then, of course, the shepherds. You know, what was going on in their minds, right? And let me ask you, how often, as you hear the word, as you read the word, as you try to apply it, and do apply it to your lives and to your thinking, both in terms of thought and action, both in terms of what has happened in the past, maybe offenses that you're trying to, to resolve in regards to, to the gospel, or maybe what's happening present. Maybe there are things going on within your life, and as you're reading the word, you're, you're, you're trying to grasp what God is doing in your life, but you find yourself, instead of accepting it, You find yourself doubting and saying, God, I, I can't accept this. This can't be true. This can't be right. And let's face it. That is one of the struggles we have with being on this side of heaven. And even though we hear the word and it's clear, and these angels weren't fuzzy, by the way. Um, Gabriel was not fuzzy when he was speaking to Zechariah or to Mary. No, he was very, very clear. The word of God is always very clear. We're the ones who take it and we make it kind of fuzzy. And we cast, we cast all kinds of things upon it. And we kind of blur it. And we say, well, maybe I'll deal with it later. The word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It's truth, it's life-changing, and it applies to our lives. And in this case, these shepherds were catching on quick, and they responded. Thirdly, fear. Go back, Old Testament, but certainly in the last couple chapters of Luke. And when Zechariah, a very mature, well-developed theological, theologically, a man of, of great experience, understands the word of God, applies it, is a leader within the church, so to speak, when he's confronted with the angel, instead of like, oh, I was kind of expecting this, or this is wonderful. No, he is afraid. Mary, same thing. She's afraid. And then we come to this portion of Luke. And an angel of the Lord, in verse 9, appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And again, I'm sure that's going to catch your attention. And they were filled 
not just with fear, but with great fear. Now, as I was thinking about this passage, I was trying to recall a time in my life where I was incredibly afraid. And the first thoughts that come to mind is when I'm a child. But at the same time, there are occasions in my life where I may not express the fear like they, that, the way that it was expressed here in the gospel, but I know in my heart of hearts I'm anxious. I'm thinking, this is not good, this is not healthy, something bad is going on. And it may happen to me. And all of a sudden your mind is filled with, like, what is this going to look like, and what is going to happen, and how am I going to, you know, and all the kinds of questions that, that come to mind. Let me ask you a question. Why? Why would you want someone to be afraid? Like, to have that kind of, 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 of uh, disposition. Like, where, where is the benefit in making people afraid? If, for example, you were to leave here today and you went home and you were talking to someone or you're emailing somebody or texting somebody and you said, I, I left the service terrified, right? They would think, well, I bet you won't go back. You know, I mean, like, what's going on here? What kind of a church are you a part of that, that people are leaving afraid? Why am I not comforting you? Why, I, why are my words not encouraging you, etc.? But think about it. It's not our intent, and I'm sure the elders will never have me come back if you leave here terrified, but let's just, let's just acknowledge the fact that there are some times in our lives where God really does need to get our attention. And, there are, and sometimes he will do it through circumstances. And in the midst of those circumstances, we're like, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how this is going to end up for good. I don't see anything good here at all. This is horrible, etc. Maybe, maybe sometimes as you're thinking about your life and relationships, you find yourself consumed with guilt and remorse, and shame. None of those things are, are elements of comfort, right? And the point is simply this. We do belong to a faith. We belong to a God who, at times, when it's appropriate, will get our attention. In this case, it's fear. They were afraid. And rightfully so, these these angels are coming from the presence of God. Do you think any of us here can be very comfortable with being in the presence of God with the sin that we have in our lives? We say, well, no, it would be through Christ. Yes, of course. But the thing, the thing going back with Moses, for example, who had to, had to be hid behind the rock, etc., because of the glory of God. The point is, is that when you're in the presence of God and you really understand his word and you really understand what his Holy Spirit is doing, you're going to find yourself without the answers and feeling somewhat anxious and feeling somewhat uh, maybe afraid of what is coming because you can't see it. And it's in that environment that we'll find ourselves trusting or not where we can't see, we can't figure it out, we don't have all the answers, we just know 
that God is God and it will be all right. And I think it's helpful for us occasionally to own the fact that that's what it means for us to know Christ. And then fourth of all, of course, is worship. The angels are worshiping in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And of course, the shepherds go and they see the Christ child. And it's all very, I, it's all very dim, you might say. It's somewhat shielded in terms of what's happening here. But they understand that God is doing something significant. And my question to you this morning is, what significant, what is God doing that's significant in your life? It may not be giving you what you want or what you've been praying for. It may be just the opposite. But what's significant for us as Christians is to, is to follow him. And then, in the midst of that, to worship him. To, in essence, put everything else aside and to say, Lord, I would really like this. I would really like that. I mean, let's face it. You know, it's, it's almost like we, can, we have this Christmas mindset all year long. Like, you know, as long as you give me the things that I want, the things that I like, that my, you know, according to my plan, I'm going to be happy. And that's the most wonderful thing about being a Christian is that often God says, no, I'm going to do something very different, very drastic. But at the end, at the end, you will worship me. And you will honor me. And you will find life, not in the other things, even like good things, but only in me. And find that I am worthy of all of your attention. So I pray, I hope, that as you experience the rest of today, Christmas Eve, and you have great food, and I hope you have a lot of great food, you know, it's okay to indulge a little bit and have great times with your family and uh, fellowship. And tomorrow, as you spend time opening gifts, that you think about these angels, which, yes, to much of the world seems like foolishness, but who understood and learned what it meant to experience the glory of God, what it meant to hear his word, his message, to experience fear, and to worship. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the Advent season. Thank you for, for enabling us to celebrate the birth of Christ. Thank you, Father, for the incarnation. That we have the privilege because our Savior was so oriented towards loving us that he came and humbled himself, born in, a, born in a stable, laid in a manger, under very, very difficult circumstances, but all because of his care for us. Thank you for his death and resurrection. And I pray, Father, that as we go through this coming year, as this church goes through the transition of a new pastor and family, that you will use this church for your glory in this community and beyond. I pray, Father, that you would enable us as your people to really appreciate what it means to worship you 